Okay, welcome to the AC Gleason podcast. Uh, St. Joshi is back for the. It's it's been a while, but he's back to finish our discussion about his book on the weird tale. And um, so we're gonna start with, uh, I think James, right? Mr. James. Yep. So James is. How how many of these writers are English? Because James is definitely English. Yeah. Uh, okay. Arthur Mackin is technically Welsh. He, you know, oh, okay. lived in England. Uh, Lord Dunsany technically is Irish, uh, although he was born in London. But you know, he's sort of Anglo-Irish. But he had there's still a big castle out there in Ireland, Dunsany Castle. I've been there. It's an incredible place. Uh, Algernon Blackwood, pure English, uh, you know, and his fact his father was quite a distinguished member of the British uh, 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 government at one point. He was like the postmaster general, essentially. Um, uh, M.R. James, again, pure English, and we'll get into that in a minute because that's, that's of some importance to, to the way he approached literature. Uh, Ambrose Pierce, of course, an American, served in the Civil War on the Union side, you know, in, in Ninth Indiana Volunteers, and of course, Lovecraft. Uh, American, but of course he he was sort of a, had this adoration for England, and his ancestry on the paternal side did come from England. So the UK is overrepresented in this group. I mean, it's it's like mostly a UK group, actually. Yeah, I mean, maybe that's just our bias or my bias toward what is called anglophone literature. And yet, you know, I did write a history of supernatural fiction, and I made some efforts, perhaps maybe only token efforts, to uh, to read literature outside of the English language. I mean, theoretically, I can read in Latin and Greek and French and German and Spanish, but uh, <laughs> not so well anymore. I, 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 some of those languages are fading. Um, but I, you know, French has a long tradition of, of, of weird fiction. Um, uh, and, and I just edited a volume of Guy de Maupassant's uh, fiction that's coming out from Centipede Press, what I believe to be his collected weird stories um oh that sounds fascinating but the but the, the yeah the european tradition is quite different i think they they approach it in, in a different way i mean it's it's we don't want to go into that but it's uh, uh somehow maybe we're just accustomed more to the the pure supernaturalism that comes out of of uh, uh, uh literature in english uh hmm. and i think even you know lovecraft he didn't he didn't read other languages either he knew he knew latin he didn't he knew a little greek but um you know his treatise supernatural horror and literature basically focuses on english uh english and american writers with one chapter devoted to europeans okay um so james's position in england is like pretty hot like he's a big deal to this he day. is um and you know he okay let's get his dates right 1862 to 1936 in fact he died only a couple days after robert e howard committed suicide in fact, i think the very next day that was kind of weird in 1936 um but uh you know happens since but uh hmm. james uh was the culmination really speaking of the classic english ghost story now when i wrote the weird tale i was sort of uh i don't know i approached him in, in a somewhat jaundiced manner because i i i did not have a high regard for the pure ghost story as such you know a story with a ghost in it uh, mm. i don't like the idea of using that term ghost story as a broader designation for the field it's it's it doesn't work that way in my estimation people have done it but i i don't like it um so uh, to my mind, and I'm following Lovecraft on this, 
the very idea of a ghost, certainly by the even the turn of the 20th century, which is when James started writing his work, had become sort of outmoded in my in my estimation, uh, because uh, you know the progress of science had had made it uh, an implausible entity, and once that mm -hmm. happens, uh, aesthetically it becomes difficult to to use such an entity um, because. It, it makes it so much harder to to convince people that uh, of the of the reality of what you're writing about. Oh, uh, I see. Yeah, James got over that. Uh, well, first, let, let me go into the history of the of the of the ghost story. Well, I mean, it goes back to antiquity, of course, but um, we could even start with things like uh, um, uh, Daniel Defoe's "The Apparition of Mrs. Veal," which dates like 1705, uh, mm. and that he, he that was a purportedly real account of of a ghost that that. Did not Defoe didn't see it, but he was chronicling somebody else who who believed that 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 he or she saw it. Mm -hmm. um, not much else happened in the 18th century and into the 19th. The Gothic novel does have elements of the ghost in it from time to time, but their focus is generally elsewhere on the haunted castle and uh, uh, other things like that. Deals with the devil, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and when Poe came along, he basically eschewed the ghost because, again, even he felt that it was it was uh, you know uh, not something that he could work with. He wanted to use different types of supernatural ideas or non supernatural ideas. He was very much into psychological horror, mm. but the ghost story became a, a thing in England, particularly in the later, let's say, last two decades of the 19th century. A whole lot of people started writing ghost stories uh, as such. Uh, a lot of women writers, uh, and some really fine ones, uh, you know, Rhoda Broughton and uh, uh, um, uh, Mrs. Charlotte Riddell, and, and so many others. I mean, there's a, an enormous crop of, of uh, ghost story writers in that vein. And they did fine work, uh, and James sort of is the culmination of that. In, in America... Uh, we had uh, uh, Edith Wharton, Henry James. Of course, Henry James was a transplanted American. He he born here, but then went to the UK and lived most of his life in the, in England. Uh, wrote superb ghost stories. Um, now, generally speaking, the ghost story is almost certain to be interpreted um, uh, symbolically. Okay. Uh, most of the people who wrote ghost stories, with one exception that I can think of, and that's that's Margaret Oliphant. Did not believe in the existence of ghosts. I mean, they okay. didn't. Um, they used the ghost as a metaphor for expressing other human concerns. You know, the revenge motif. That's very big in James. Um, uh, the notion of of, of 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 a person who has been wronged, maybe killed, even mm -hmm. uh, and, and returns from the dead to 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 uh, you know, haunt the living. Uh, things like that. There are other other ways to uh, uh, approach the ghost story in that way. Uh, James decided to do so uh, by what he called, well, I don't know if he actually called it that, but what we now call the sort of the antiquarian or scholarly ghost story. Um, and mm. that suited his temperament to a T. James himself was a profound scholar in a number of subjects. I mean, he 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 went to school at Cambridge and and taught at King's College, Cambridge, uh, became a dean there. Uh, very impressive uh, academic credentials. Uh, not only that, uh, he became fascinated with the medieval era uh, and and um, did a lot of work on on uh, medieval manuscripts. In fact, through the course of his life, he published booklets uh, cataloging 
the paper, the, the manuscripts of every single college in Cambridge University. Now, Cambridge, hmm. Cambridge is not one institution. It is a bunch of little, you know, little colleges, not so right. little sometimes. Uh, King's College, Keys College. I mean, there's so many colleges at, at Cambridge. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he went through and cataloged all the manuscripts in each of their libraries. They're all separate. Um, an incredible accomplishment. And he also think he he edited a, 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 what is called the, the Apocryphal New, New Testament. I'm sure you know all about that. Uh, Actually, the, you know, oh, the, the Apocrypha, that, you mean? The Apocrypha, the ancient texts. Right, know, right, right. Make yeah. it into the New Testament for one reason or another, uh, but are very interesting texts nonetheless. And his right. edition of that from... 1924, I believe, remained standard for decades. So he mm. was a he was a profound scholar. So he loved that that kind of of, of uh, delving into the past, and he did that with his ghost stories because I think he recognized that setting a story in the past, or at least uh, uh, allowing the ghost story to emerge from the past, is one way to convince people that the ghost is actually a, a real entity. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and and again, surrounding it with academic or scholarly uh, paraphernalia is again a way of creating verisimilitude. A lot of his uh, characters are scholars or or investigators of one sort. Yeah, uh, and and you know, in the course of their researches, they come upon these these uh, horrors. And I think Count Magnus, probably his greatest story, uh, is a great example of that. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, because I think the one that's probably most well known over here is casting the runes would would that probably be true casting the ruins is a magnificent story i mean and, and it's one of the few stories in in james's corpus that i can remember at least where the the uh evil machinations of the the ghost or whatever it is actually it's a it's a sorcerer a living sorcerer right. uh, is confounded and and reversed uh, oh the, the, yeah uh, you know he, uh, the, the curse uh, uh, that that the fellow uh, cast in the rune bounces back on himself um that's fairly rare in james uh he he liked to uh, um have, have his characters victimized by the ghost or the supernatural phenomenon rather than triumphing over it so uh, and of course as uh, we all know casting the rune served as the great inspiration for that really fine movie um uh, curse of the demon um i think I it has a different title in the, i actually in haven't UK, but, you know, i haven't seen Jacques that yet. Turner, a great film from the 50s i believe yeah people i've i've heard that one referenced as a as a good one from the area i just haven't gotten around to seeing it yet. but um i was list so i have this collection of i think mark gaddis's like bbc mm. adaptations of mr james that i've been listening to and one that i listened to the other day was really creepy about a witch that had been like buried. I can't remember what the name of it was, but it was a, it was like she had been buried out in the front yard and people kept dying in this one room. And I think you must be talking about the ash tree. Yeah. It's the ash tree. That that's is another right. great story. I think again, that's very, very close to uh, the pinnacle of James's achievement. Uh, again, incredibly rich historical texture there. Uh, because you know he he was well familiar with the uh, the witchcraft persecutions of the 15th, mm-hmm. 16th, 17th centuries, uh, and in fact he he resurrects some of the, one of the uh, a, a real witchcraft judge from that period uh, and puts him on, on on stage into that story. Oh, interesting! So there's an actual historical character in that. Oh yeah, he he story? liked he used I I think it was Judge Jeffries. He was a famous and notoriously 
violent and uh, vicious mm. judge. I mean, basically, he, he came in with the attitude that everybody was guilty unless proven innocent, you know, that sort of thing. Oh, that's uh, terrible. Uh, they're, they're, you know, again, because, again, James James wanted to, to, to convince people of the reality of what was happening. And so he, you know, he read the witch trial uh, testimonies. I mean, they're all out there. Uh, he cites them, you know, uh, right in the story. And, uh, yeah, there's a lot of, of, of real a real texture of reality in that story. So... Jane, so especially in a story like that, I almost get the sense that he's from from like, I don't know exactly when the concept of folk horror is invented, but sometimes he definitely has that vibe. So it's like this, um, you know, like some of the main themes of folk horror are things to do with like the forgotten past kind of uh, reasserting itself and, uh, you know, uh people modern modern sophisticated people not knowing what to do with it and that story really felt like um almost had like witchfinder general type uh vibes to it or something like that oh you're absolutely right um yeah, I I never thought of it actually as, as James as a pioneer of folk art. I think in, in our in our understanding folk art probably came up in the 50s 60s it's a fairly recent mm. thing but you can probably trace its antecedents uh to people like james maybe even earlier but that yeah J- james wrote a later story called a view from a hill which is set in the sort of the um uh, east coast of england and that, that that's a real you know sort of pioneering folk horror story if you want to look at it that way yeah so he's so you you were saying he's basically the culmination of like the entire sort of ghost tradition Mm. um and in some ways i think he's almost viewed as like the final word on it because ghost stories are like still super popular but they're popular in like you know that horrible you know i don't even know which, which channel does them all now but it's one of those channels like history channel or something that doesn't do history anymore um and there's just there's tons of ghost stuff but it's not being done from like a literary perspective. It's like fake docudramas and, you know, podcasts and things like that. So, is, so he's, so you're saying he's kind of, he's sort of the Zenith, like he's the culmination of all this stuff. And that's one of the reasons why he has such an important place, especially in like the English tradition. Yeah, I think so. Um, in fact, as I say, when I wrote the weird tale, I was sort of, uh, I, I viewed James with a certain amount of um, um, skepticism in, in a sense because I myself did not really value the ghost story as such, because I already felt that even when he was writing, it was outmoded. But, you know, mm. to be sure, as I studied him uh, more, read his biography, and, you know, there's actually two really good biographies of him out there, um, I, I began to have greater respect for what he was trying to do. I still don't think he really belongs, and actually Lovecraft did not think he belonged in the very top tier of weird writers. Um mm. Later on in life, after he wrote Supernatural Horror and Literature, he said, you know, I ought to have put Walter Delamere in there. Um, and we, we, we don't go off, we want to go off on that subject because Delamere is a tremendous writer in, indeed. But uh, although not quite as central to the weird tradition uh, as, as James was. James, of course, inspired some immediate um, uh, imitators who, frankly, you know, they're, they're, they're should we say pale imitations of of James A. N. L. Munby mm-hmm. wrote a book called The Alabaster Hand. E. G. Swain. There, there are a whole crop of sort of James pastiches, you know, in England. You know, okay, fine. Um, 
I actually think that James indirectly, at least, inspired a different tradition of ghost story be precisely because he had raised the form to, to, to you know, to this culmination with, you know, what do you do after that? Well, mm. do it in a different way. That is to say, you do it in the psychological manner. You you think you think things mm. like um, um, again, Delamere actually is one example, but people like Oliver Onions who wrote some great ghost stories. You can still get his collected ghost stories out there. A fine, fine, fine volume. Uh, L. P. Hartley uh, and a number of others. What they did, especially in something like um, oh, even going back, even this actually even before James uh, uh, Robert Hitchens uh, wrote a story called the uh, um, uh, How Love Came to Professor Gildy. And that is an unbelievable story, and quite frankly, far more powerful than anything James ever wrote, uh, dates mm. 1900, um, in which a man uh, who is something of a scientist, but that's that's not the emphasis. What he, what he is, is he's a man who has rejected emotion and rejected uh, any sort of, you know, involvement uh, or, or in, interaction with, with other human beings. He's very, as, as the English would say, a cold fish, you know. Uh, and what happens to him? A ghost falls in love with him, and you know, which is mm. for him the worst possible fate. I mean, this, 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 you know, this female ghost, whoever it is, uh, you know, expresses this love for him. It's like, oh my god, this is horrible. <laughs> you know, maybe he was an early incel or something like that. I don't know, <laughs> but the, but you know, and that that is the sort of horror in that story that this is the very worst thing that could pass, possibly happen to a person like him. Uh, again, mm -hmm. it's all meant symbolically. It's all meant as someone, you know, as as showing the ill effects of failing to connect with human beings uh, emotionally. I mean, this is this is what happens to you. Uh, mm -hmm. Not good. Um, and, and Hitchens wrote many, many uh, stories well on into, into the 1940s. He died in 1950. And uh, uh, I still think his collected uh, weird stories need to be gathered up. I'm, I'm in the course of doing that. But uh, uh, people like uh, Oliver Onions wrote another magnificent story called... Um, um, the beckoning fair one again a man uh, uh haunted by a female ghost again there's some sort of weird sort of psychosexual tension there mm. um uh something frankly that that the very um uh, celibate mr james could not possibly imagine so these writers uh, uh took the you know sort of made the ghost story psychological the, the manifestation is not necessarily out there but it's in your mind mm. uh because that's that's one way of sort of doing something new with the ghost story which otherwise i it, to my mind had already been played out by the time james uh, completed his career hmm. yeah it's interesting because i guess i see how i guess i see how he's part of the weird tradition especially so in a story like the ash tree i feel like things are i mean clearly this witch i think it even ends with them like finding her body her or something like that right at the foot of the ash tree yeah. yeah and so um spoiler alert i guess um but uh belated spoiler alert but um it it definitely is trying to imply that something that it's not like it's not exactly clear what's killing these people through you know throughout the story in the in the bedroom but then by the end, I mean, you know, it's sort of like I've always thought it would have been really fascinating to see a version of a film like Alien or something like that, where you literally never actually see the monster. Mm -hmm. 
And I think that because it's it almost always the the monsters stop being scary almost as soon as you see them. And so I feel like that that's one of the closest things I've ever seen to a story like that. You never actually see the witch. You never see the monster that's killing people. Everything is. And it's incredibly creepy. I think there's a well, not terribly recent anymore, but isn't there a film called The Others, uh, or is it just Others with Nicole Kidman? Uh, uh, something like that, right? Th- there is a ghost movie with Nicole Kidman, but you definitely see the ghosts. Oh, okay, maybe I was misremembering, but uh, but I somehow I thought they had kept it at least off screen for a long time or something. It but, is. Uh, oh, you know what? Maybe you're right because I think that's the one where, um, it's like she's got twin boys and one of them is i should probably rewatch it i can't remember the details i do remember liking yeah, I, that i movie. can't either now but that that struck me as a very powerful film and of course uh, i mean in talking about the ghost story you have to talk about the other james and that is henry james with the turn of the screw i mean mm. oh my god uh, i actually really dislike most of james's henry james's books mm. uh, and even his other ghost stories i think are actually not so good, or at least not not to my taste. Let us just say, um, I mean, he's a great writer, no question about it. I'm not I'm not saying he isn't, but uh, it's just not at all my cup of tea that that sort of uh, writing. But the turn of the screw is an imperishable masterpiece. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you know, is it a psychological ghost story? Is it all in your mind, or all in the mind of this governess who sees these things, or is it out there? I actually think it is out there. Uh, a lot of people think it's one of these so-called ambiguous ghost stories where you can't determine whether whether it's supernatural or psychological i think that's a mistake you can read my book on that subject uh in in, in unutterable horror but uh that's a whole another argument but whatever it is it is absolute masterpiece and of course it led to this tremendous film uh, uh, called the innocents in 1964 in england um if you haven't seen that film oh my god that's mm, gonna fall anyway black and white film 1964 the uh, I-N-N-O-C-E-N-T-S, uh, because it refers to the two young, the children who are, in effect, the victims, or maybe not the victims, uh, of, of the supernatural manifestation. And it, it, is, it is brilliant, that, mm. that film, and the story, too. Okay, cool. Is there anything else we need to know about Mr. James before moving on to ambrose uh there's a lot more we can say but uh you know that's that about covers it i mean i i almost wish he had called his works something other than ghost stories but he was devoted to that that terminology every single one of his books uh refers to that and it is okay um um but uh you know and i don't know that he had a lot of he, he i don't think he 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 was not like lovecraft where he discussed you know stuff with other people or had a lot of contacts with other people in the weird community mm-hmm. uh it just that that the, the 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 body of his work you know did develop this enormous following uh mostly in england but you know over here too um and and uh you know he's uh he's a figure that you can't uh, uh dismiss do you know why he was so because he doesn't i mean he definitely tells ghost stories but not all of his like i wouldn't say the ash tree is really a ghost story yeah i yeah that well unless you think of of the ghost of the witch i mean who knows i I, guess that's what it would have to be but that's not or even like you know casting the runes that's not a ghost story yeah that's not actually not a ghost story either that's you know a, a curse a curse story um yeah, so he he did expand beyond the, the strict ghost story himself. 
Uh, and the funny thing is, he wrote a lot of essays about the ghost story, especially in the 20s uh, for various, you know, uh, uh, venues. Uh, he wrote an introduction to a, somebody else's anthology about ghost stories. Um, and he was very critical of some of the ghost writing or supernatural writing that was going on in his own day. He was he was kind of squeamish about it. Uh, in fact, there may be... Um, uh, I don't know if he actually read Lovecraft. He could have. Actually, he did read Lovecraft's supernatural horror and literature. Somebody sent it to him oh, uh, shortly after in the, in the magazine. It, it appeared in 1927. They sent it to him later. Um, and and <laughs> James was uh, critical about it. Said, "Oh God, this guy uses the word cosmic like 24 times." <laughs> and he got really tired of that. Uh, but he says, "Well, but it's a good historical study of the ghost story from antiquity <clears throat> to myself." <laughs> so whatever. He, he liked that part of it um but uh, so that that's pretty funny uh but uh, yeah he uh, he was critical of what, what he considered to be over the top horror the you know blood and guts kind of horror even though some of that is in his own work although somewhat more more uh, covert uh, but mm. if you think about it sometimes there there's a certain amount of grisliness in his stories as well yeah it just seems like it's usually implied mm. but yeah there's definitely grisliness in there so um do you is there any sense in which because I've heard that in in England the ghost story actually has political implications or maybe not political I think it's religious. So is that one of the reasons why he's so dedicated to that word or the concept? Well, that's funny because I I, I didn't want to go into this because it's kind of a, a, a long and involved argument. When I restudied James after writing my chapter on the ghost story in in on him in in the weird tale. I discovered, or at least according to some of his biographers, he was both politically and culturally, and in particular religiously, conservative. Yeah, that is to say, he he was a devout Anglican, and in fact, at the time, <clears throat> in order to be a teacher uh, of any sort at Cambridge University, you had to be an Anglican. Mm. <laughs> I mean, it was you know you could not <laughs> disavow the the established church. That was it. Um, in fact, the great the great critic Leslie Stephen, uh, uh, who was the, the father of Virginia Woolf, a uh, great uh, critic in himself, had to leave Cambridge uh, for that very reason um, <clears throat> because he refused to 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 you know s you know sign uh, or some document saying that he was a, a devout Anglican. Anyway. Mm -hmm. um there is some indirect evidence that that he james did not approve of some of the sort of the, some of the radicals at cambridge at the time who were pushing uh you know certain certain religious uh or in his view anti-religious conceptions you know james george mm -hmm. fraser was writing the golden bow uh which is this tremendous anthro anthropological analysis of the origin of religious belief mm -hmm. uh bertrand russell in the 1910s was in was at cambridge briefly um uh, before i think they kicked him out or something <laughs> can't remember but uh <laughs> so yeah he was a full-fledged atheist um there is right. some evidence that james didn't like that sort of thing you know because he felt it was you know it was impious it was it was you know heretical uh and because mm. he was he was you know uh he was very devout uh and there again you can try to read some of that in into his stories uh not sure that you can make a direct correlation there, but uh, you know, there's that element of it uh, uh, in his work. It's funny because I'm sure when we get to Lovecraft, we'll talk about racism at least a little bit. But as popular as Lovecraft is, especially with atheists, mm -hmm. I feel like his politics 
become a constant it's it's i think his politics are actually a little boring at this point but like his politics his worldview and all that stuff is like this constant part that especially like white horror fans feel the need to apologize for all the time Mm -hmm. and i've never heard anyone talk about james in this light and he's pretty popular Mm -hmm. even with like american you know like um i don't know if you've if you've uh listen to uh, monster talk but um what you call it's one of my favorite podcasts uh from two skeptics and they uh blake the the main host he does like um i think every year he does like a christmas reading on the podcast of like i know he's at least done casting the runes i feel like he's done more mr james stories but i just i never hear anybody talk about mr james being a problematic figure the way that lovecraft is well yeah i think james kept those sorts of things very deeply buried in <laughs> oh, his okay. fiction and even in his in his personal life i mean you can get hints of it here and there but it's uh you know uh james comes across as a pretty pretty you know unproblematical guy from that perspective i mean uh and and maybe for from our perspective as americans well, what's happened in England, you know, way back then, it doesn't really affect us. You know, we don't know yeah. anything about it. You know, uh, again, people, a lot of people don't know about this, you know, the whole established church of England. And it's still an established church to this day, even though a very small minority of of, of English people are are now, uh, you know, uh, professed Anglicans. So it's yeah. the whole thing about the Anglican church is a bit a bit, uh, bit outdated now. Uh, but there it is. Yeah, it's true. All right. Well, let's move on to beers. Um I, except for Owl Creek, I don't have very much. Oh, and Denison of Carcosa. I have very little understanding or, I mean, Beers wrote a ton of stuff. And I don't even think, is most of it even weird fiction? Uh, No. (laughs) Funny you should mention that. Uh, uh, I am in the process of publishing well, what I call his collected essays and journalism. I'm, I'm self-publishing it through my tiny little imprint called Sarnath Press. Mr. Beers, for his most of his long life, from 1842 to at least 1914, he's one of these people we don't know when he died, but that's another matter. Um, so he lived for like almost 70, no, more than 70 years. Um, and <clears throat> most of that life from as early as the 18, late 1860s, he was a journalist a newspaper writer not a not a reporter as such but basically a a kind of an op-ed columnist or something like that right okay he edited several papers in san francisco in particular he wrote a massive quantity of stuff and the the, this this edition of the collected essays and journalism might go to something like 50 volumes i mean believe me it it is that much of it to my mind it's brilliant stuff i mean it's it's very hard to get into nowadays because it's deal with local local you know or situations of you know back in you know, almost a sure. century and a half ago it's hard for us to, to really understand what he was talking about but stylistically and and uh you know in so many other ways it is a brilliant contribution to to american literature really speaking uh and it's long overdue that this material you know has to get out there it's been very hard to find a lot of this stuff <clears throat> it was mostly written for these um weekly uh papers in san francisco there was one something called the california san francisco newsletter and california advertiser uh then he wrote for um a magazine called the argonaut which i think is still going actually it started in 1877 
the mm. wasp which is deliberately uh, designed as a satirical paper uh, you know you know this was, the wasp stings uh, you know uh, uh, is it satirizing like that, that paper and then in 1887 it's funny he, he and he tells a hilarious story about it um the young william randolph hearst who was only like in his 20s at the time uh his father uh, who was one of the senators of california basically gave him the san francisco examiner uh, to to play around with, you know, he got kicked out of Harvard, you know, and he didn't, it wasn't wasn't doing much of anything. He said, "Okay, George uh, or, or William, do 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 this, uh, run this paper if you want to, just get out of my way." Um, and and one of the first things he did, he went up to Bierce's house in in Oakland. I think he was living in Oakland at the time. So he knocked on the door and says, um, uh, "Will you write for my paper?" Uh, and Bierce said, "Yeah, okay." Uh, and he did for like the next twenty years uh, and wrote this huge amount of stuff. And actually, it is there in those first five or six years from 1887 to 1892 is when Beers published most of his uh, horror stories as well uh, in the San Francisco Examiner, in sort of the second section of the Sunday paper, which is like, you know, kind of like a features uh, section you know, after the, the first news section. And it's interesting to, you know, to, to read those things uh, in in a newspaper we we don't publish much fiction in newspapers anymore although <clears throat> there was a long tradition of that you know going well into the 1940s and 50s they still published um uh, fiction in newspapers even serialized novels uh some of sinclair lewis's novels were serialized in newspapers that was you know it was a it was a, a thing to do then that's fascinating but, uh, and beers you know i you know he was certainly writing at a time at least in America, when the weird tradition was not all that strong or or a coherent genre. I mean, obviously, he knew Poe. He knew Poe very well. He wrote uh, some interesting essays about Poe, uh, had a great admiration for him. Um, but um, it almost seems as if Beers sort of stumbled into writing horror stories uh, just because of life experiences and, and other things. But I don't think mm. he was conscious of saying, oh, I am writing a horror story. He's just writing what he wants to write. And it ends up being, you know, a, a tale of horror or the supernatural. Okay. So Owl Creek is probably his most famous work of fiction. Yep. Is that even a horror story? Yeah, that's it's that's a very interesting question because, of course, it's a, a story of the Civil War. And it first appeared, as I say, in the newspaper. And then uh, it was gathered up in Bierce's first true story collection called Tales of Soldiers and Civilians, which is uh, published in 1891 uh, in San Francisco. Um, and that gathered up a bunch of the Civil War stories he had written up to that time and then uh, other stories, you know, the stories of civilians, as it were, uh, you know, other miscellaneous stories that, that he had written. Mo you know, are they horror stories? I think they are. I think that Beers, you know, who served in the Civil because War. Because there's horrific elements to the story. Well, it's horrific and in some ways fantastic. And, you know, that, that story uh, is certainly a story of psychological horror. Uh, because okay. obviously all the events, the, the, you know, the word occurrence is, is deliberately bland. Um, what he's referring yeah. to is this whole series of events that this uh, guy who's about to be executed, hanged, uh, you know, Peyton Farquhar, uh, thinks is actually happening, but it's only happening in the split second between uh, when the when the, 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 the something is pulled away from under his feet, and then he and he and he right. and he's hanged and then dies. Tremendous. 
uh, uh, psychological power in, in that conception. And of course, it's been used many times over by writers and by filmmakers. I mean, it's, it's yeah. been stolen huh? <laughs> more often times than I can think of. Um, I think a lot of Bierce's horror, uh, of Civil War stories are certainly within the realm of horror, or at least very close to it, because in a lot of cases, the war background, while significant, is not absolutely essential to the story. You can imagine a story in which uh, uh, the same sort of thing happens outside of a war scenario. For example, there's a great story called A Watcher by the Dead. Um, uh, no, I'm sorry. I, I, I'll get back to that. Uh, it's a story called A Tough Tussle. Uh, that's a Civil War story. It's a, it's a war story where a, a soldier is is uh, uh, basically finds himself horrified by being in the proximity of a corpse. I mean, there's more to it than that, but that's mm-hmm. essentially the, the 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 core of it, you know. Because Beers had a real sense of the of the finality of death. He was certainly a, he was not a believer. He did not believe in anything like an afterlife. I mean, when you're dead, that's it. You're done. Mm-hmm. Uh, and 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 you know, your body is just a rotting corpse, uh, and that itself can be horrifying. And then right. later on, he wrote a story called A Watcher by the Dead, in which that same scenario where a, a guy, you know, kind of contrived now but uh, 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 accepts a bet to to spend a night in a, in a morgue or something, you know, in, in the presence of a dead body, and he freaks out. Um, so it's basically the same scenario here, except one is considered a war story, the other one is a, is a civilian story. So basically the same idea, though. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. So then he, so most of his stuff is, I guess, more what we would consider normal fiction. But then he also has things like denizen of kirk or is it denizen uh, or citizen inha- an inhabitant of carcosa. an inhabitant of carcosa which is so strange and i only really came to beers i should have much earlier because you know owl creek is I, I think widely regarded as one of the top five top ten short american stories probably ever um by the time i came to it like you were just saying it's been stolen so many times i was not all that impressed um because the twist has been you know it's like a dark and stormy night it's it's considered almost bad form to write a story like that now um but um it's clearly still very talented and the fact that he did that before anyone else had is is very impressive Mm -hmm. but like you know i so i saw true detective and then i started looking into some of the influences because you know carcosa is like the name of this location in the show and stuff and and then i finally got around to those things and i was like this is super weird and this is like not anything like owl creek it's not anything like a lot of the other stuff so can you can you say some about that story and maybe his, you know, I wish I could explain wrote. to you how Beers came to write that story. I mean, it's it's a very, it's it is it's, it remains a, a, a weird outlier in his output. There's one other story that's kind of sort of like it, um, called uh, Haita the Shepherd. Basically, another fantasy story. That's where things like Hastur are mentioned, and, and, mm. and some other terms like that are mentioned. Um, Holly, of course, although, you know, Holly was supposed to be some sort of prophet, uh, invented prophet that Beer cites in a number of stories, but, uh, those couple stories, you know, just out of the blue, you know, it's extraordinary how, how Beers wrote those. And he never says, you know, why he wrote it or how he came to write it. But those, those few, few stories were then picked up by Robert W. Chambers, mm-hmm. uh, 
uh, for his book, The King in Yellow of 1895. And the direct influence uh, in in the True Detective is actually from Chambers rather right. than Beers. I don't know that the, 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 the True Detective people actually went all the way back to Beers. Uh, and Chambers changed some things around, which is fine. That's his prerogative uh, when he lifted some of these elements from Beers. Um, but it's actually surprising how close it was. I mean, remember, uh, uh, Haita, the show, sorry, Inhabitant of Carcosa was published in newspapers all the way back in like 1876, but wasn't collected in book form until, um, well, it was either Tales of Soldiers and Civilians in 1891, or it was in his next volume, um, uh, Can Such Things Be, uh, in 1893. And Can Such Things Be really is, uh, at least, uh, in, in a later edition, uh, his his core supernatural writing, uh, mm. but you know, Ch- Chambers picked up on that very fast. I mean, only a couple of years later, he he published uh, uh, the King in Yellow, and uh, you know, uh, it's it's interesting. I wonder if I, I have no record of Beers being aware of Chambers's borrowing of his stuff, although it happened right there in his lifetime. Uh, but he doesn't exhibit any awareness of it, in, in, at least in correspondence that I've read. Um, so yeah, yeah, Beers. You know, we have lots of letters by Beers. I, I, I hope one of these days we'll, I'll, I'll publish the collected correspondence of Beers in, in like two or three big volumes. Um, but he doesn't talk really about writing that much about his sources of inspiration. So he's kind of he even even the, you know in spite of all this stuff that he published over his lifetime, he's he's a bit of a, an enigma. Uh, we don't really know what went on in his mind in a lot of ways. Um, but you know, it's just you know these things just sort of popped up, you know, maybe he was, maybe it just can't be explained, but, but there it is. So the, the direct line from beers to Lovecraft, <clears throat> is it, is he reading beers or is it chambers? Oh yes. Lovecraft read beers. In fact, okay. although he came to him somewhat late in like 1919, Lovecraft was almost 30 years old at the time. Uh, that's when he says he first read beers and he read him, through the influence of his friend Samuel Loveman, who had known Beers, or at least had corresponded with Beers, sort of at the tail end of Beers's life in 1908, 1913, mm. thereabouts. Uh, and in fact, Loveman published, uh, or actually uh, had a friend of his publish this really rare book called 21 Letters of Ambrose Beers, which are, you know, Beers's letters to Loveman uh, over the years. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, so through that, uh, uh, Loveman said, "Oh, you got to read Beers," and and Lovecraft said, "Yeah, wow, this is great stuff." Now, Beers uh, generally certainly doesn't have that cosmic perspective, except in rare instances like Inhabitant of Carcosa and right. pieces. Um, uh, Beers is very much down to earth. I mean, he's he's very much on the human scale, which is mm-hmm. fine, and he does it brilliantly. And he's mostly interested in the psychology of of his protagonist and the psychology of fear which he picked up from poe although you know he he was clearly a, a, a profound student of human psychology lovecraft not so much interested in that um so the direct influence mm-hmm. of fierce on lovecraft is not all that strong but you can find it in, in a few random pieces for example there's there's the great story the damned thing which is a, a story of an invisible monster now there are some uh, uh antecedents to beers on that uh in fact he had to uh, resist or, or rebut accusations that he had borrowed from stories like fitz james o'brien's what was it back in 1862 and of course uh guida Maupassant's great story the horla uh from the 1880s uh, which i think is the prototypical story of an invisible monster mm. uh, but beers does his own thing with that um and and of course you can trace 
the influence of all three of those stories upon Lovecraft's um I think Lovecraft's color out of space is, is in some sense a kind of invisible monster story, although also uh, the Danish mm. horror, uh, which again is is only seen in, at the very end of that story. Uh, you can only right. see its effects, you know, on the uh, you know um, uh, big footprints in the in the earth and things like that. Um, so, but but I think you know there are traces of of Beer's influence. Uh, you know, one of Lovecraft's actually mediocre stories uh, in the Vault. I think attempts to write in that kind of satirical vein that that Beers mastered, uh, Lovecraft never quite got it right, at least not in that story. Um, uh, so I think he had admiration for Beers, uh, but it, it, his work as a whole didn't really re- resonate with him as much as other writers. Okay, because I think okay. So then, is is he reading Chambers or is there? Oh, just... he, yeah, but he read Chambers even later. Um, it's funny because he was writing supernatural horror literature in like 25, you know, all the way up to 1927 when it, when it got published. He kept adding things to it. Uh, and just before uh, he, you know, he was reading the proofs of that, of that, of that uh, essay and someone, let me think it was, it was either W. Paul Cook or his, his you know, fairly recent uh, colleague, Donald Wandry said, one of those two guys said, hey, you know, you got to read this book by Chambers uh, because Chambers, had a very bizarre career. He wrote, you know, King and Yellow in 1895. It was his second book. He wrote a couple of other horror books at that time, you know, The Maker of Moons, um, uh, uh, Mystery of Choice, uh, In Search of the Unknown. But then, basically by the turn of the century, he started writing these kind of what we call shop girl romances, you know, historical romances <laughs> are basically melodramas designed for for the shop girl, the the, the you know for the young woman who was uh, mm-hmm. wanted to read about uh, love and and romance and things like that, and became hugely popular and and hugely successful. So that is what Lovecraft knew Chambers to be. So he's just some popular hack writer, you know, of of, mm-hmm. of, of his own day, and he had no idea. Nobody did, really speaking, because those early books had already been forgotten. Uh, but Wanderai or, or somebody came along and said, hey, you got to read this book. Uh, and Lovecraft was totally blown away and added a paragraph on the proofs of supernatural hard literature. Uh, and, and it got in there. Um, uh, he still, you know, uh, I, I don't know that the influence of Chambers itself is all that strong either on Lovecraft. But he was he certainly was taken by that particular book. That's so fascinating, because after... I, I don't know what those guys' position has been uh, historically, but since True Detective, I feel like these things are seen as very Lovecraftian, you know? And so it's it's odd to me. Like, can you explain what even happens in Inhabitant of Carcosa? I don't, does it even have a plot? Like, I don't. I don't know. It's, it's, a, it's a pure fantasy. I think it's, I don't know. It's a. Uh... I, I even forgot the details of the story, but um, yeah, I mean, I, maybe it's so not it, meant to be understood or meant to be explained, really speaking. Is it um, just not, in your mind, these things are not that big a part of the Lovecraftian? Uh, oh, well, no, I think I think Lovecraft, you know, he appreciated a lot of, of work that, that may not have directly influenced him. I mean, he was a voracious reader of, of, of weird fiction. Um, uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, Lovecraft was a realist, uh, you know, he, he liked Beers in, in a different way. He wanted to, uh, you know, establish a real, real world, uh, uh environment for his stories, because that felt that's, that's how you convince somebody that, that this right. is happening. 
of course, he wrote fantasies in the in the manner of Lord Dunsany, but that that's a that's a distinct part of his work. Um, mm. But I think you know it, it, he had very Catholic tastes. He he liked all he appreciated all this kind of work, even if it did not you know manifest itself in his own writing. Mm. Okay. Well, before we move on, do you have any theories about? where like what happened to him like where uh, he died or yes uh, there, uh, a scholar i i, I well I'll, I'll keep his name uh, confidential but uh <laughs> a scholar uh believes and, and has very good evidence i think that beers uh you know what he did was beers in 1930 late 1913 he was just he was kind of bored he was living in washington dc he had basically given up you know journalism and wasn't, wasn't doing much of anything um, decided first to sort of go through all the old Civil War uh, battlefields in the South that he had actually participated in, mm -hmm. uh, and then ended up in Texas, very close to the border with Mexico, and then crossed over. We know that because the last surviving letter that 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 uh, Beers ever wrote was to uh, you know a friend of his, a woman friend, uh, in in Chihuahua, Mexico, on mm -hmm. December twenty sixth. 1913 and the very last line is unbelievable i mean he couldn't have written a better ending it says tomorrow i leave for an unknown destination <laughs> oh my god i mean it's like he knew he was going to disappear <laughs> it's incredible um the this this scholar i was in touch with um believes that beer somehow got involved with in, in the battle of Ohinaga, uh, that was on like June, mid mid June of of, of 1914. Uh, you know, in in this town of Ohinaga, hmm. uh, just a little bit across the border uh, in in Mexico, and and died there. Uh, there he this fellow he claims that there is a grave site separate from the grave sites of you know the soldiers who died there. It's like, oh, is this beer? Is he seen there? <laughs> hmm. Who knows. Um, <laughs> You know, I think that's that's the most likely situation because Mexico. You know, this was this was during the Mexican Civil War. There's all yeah. sorts of stuff going on. There were many different parties battling for supremacy. You know, Pancho Villa is one of them, and uh, uh, Carranza. I mean, there were a bunch of uh, historical figures who were uh, trying to duke it out in Mexico at the time. And uh, uh, it is unlikely that he lived very long beyond you know beyond that December twenty sixth letter. I, I mean, because, especially because by the, people want to see them. You know, the the Mexican yeah. War was being covered by you know American journalists. You know, they were right there on the scene, uh, and, hmm. and you know, it's incredible that a figure of Beers' stature would have escaped notice somehow. And you know, there were all sorts of silly rumors. Oh yeah, he went off to to, to England later, and you know, participated in World War One and stuff like that. Oh, that's all nonsense. Um, <laughs> he must have died there pretty soon i mean it's crazy crazy theories that people came up with even right at the time you know uh you know beers's uh beers's uh, had a younger colleague george sterling who then became uh, uh acquainted with clark ashton smith um mm. he was a great poet in his own right um sterling and sterling you know kept hearing in the teens and 20s all these ludicrous uh accounts of where you know what what had happened to beers and you know it's just the rumor mail was already going, you know, only a couple of years after his disappearance. It's so fascinating. Um, I think uh, Joe Nickel surprisingly has one of the weird, he thinks that he, he committed suicide in the Grand Canyon. Uh, yes, that is very silly. It appears <laughs> that Mr. Mr. Nickel does not know of the existence of this 
un well, it was unpublished. I think I may have published this letter in in my edition of Business Selected Letters. This letter that he wrote from Chihuahua, Chihuahua Mexico, uh, which basically dynamized that theory, doesn't it? Um, there are some indications in some of Bierce's letters that yeah, he was basically trying to commit suicide, you know, suicide by by you know by 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 execution or something or by something war, like suicide by war. Yeah, I mean maybe, probably not. I don't I don't see that as part of his temperament. He he literally says, "I want to be where something is going on," you know, because mm -hmm. he was just bored, you know, and then certainly a lot of things were going on in Mexico by heavens. Uh, so so um, so yeah, weird. I, I mean, you know, and, and you know that you know the book that Carlos Fuentes wrote called "The Old Gringo." That's that's a fine book, and you know, made into an interesting movie. I think Gregory Peck doesn't he play Bierce, uh, not all that convincingly, and then Jane Jane Fonda is this reporter um, you know, who kind of falls in love with him or something something like that. Yeah, I was looking at the Wikipedia page on this, and I just had no idea what a big part in America the American imagination his disappearance had played mm -hmm. for a long time. Yes. And like most people don't even know who he is anymore. But I know it's sad, but uh, you know, I guess I mean I hope he hasn't just been restricted to academic interest. I, I don't think so. I think you know the core of his work, uh, you know, in, in his fiction and things like the Devil's Dictionary. My heavens, uh, my my colleague and I, David David E. Schultz, we prepared what we call the unabridged Devil's Dictionary because what happens is again the Devil's Dictionary didn't appear as a book, you know, out of thin air. It was first published in a series of columns in all these various papers that Beers was editing, you know, a little column of, you know, 15, 20 entries at a time, you know, mm. week after week after week. And when Beers finally came to gather these up in, in uh, like 1906, the publisher at the time, uh, Doubleday, I believe, could not accommodate all, all the beer definitions that Beers had written over the last 20 odd years. And so he was very selective in what he actually uh, uh, included, and then even in the revised edition of 1911, uh, just couldn't get all these things in there. So we went back to the original magazines uh, or, or papers and and dug up, you know, hundreds of definitions that had not appeared in book form since their uh, you know original appearance there. And so that's why we published the unabridged Devil's Dictionary. That that came out in 2000. It's still selling. Uh, it's still out there. So uh, you know, it, it's uh, Beers is certainly remembered for that fascinating yeah no i i think he's definitely he's he's definitely around still but like it's almost like if stephen king had you know i don't know gone to panama and just no one ever saw him again like that would be huge mm -hmm. but in a hundred years i don't know if anybody would care but like yeah, now I know. It would be such a big deal if like a big writer, like someone like that, just or a film director, whatever, just sort of disappeared. Beers, People just don't, you, he had a big weird. reputation, mostly in California, but, you know, across across the U.S. too. Um, he was a feared journalist. I mean, he he you know, he was, a. I think, to my mind, he may have been the Amer America's greatest satirist. Uh, I mean, boy, his pen was dipped in dipped in venom. <laughs> he really, he really gave it to the people he didn't like, <laughs> but but always artistically and always, you know, with with a certain refinement and mm. and. But he he could he could really stick it to you. Uh, he was he was feared in California. He was he was like you know. In fact, uh, you know, his initials were or, or, or Ambrose Gwinnett Bierce, A. G. Bierce, which some people took to be to refer to Almighty God Bierce, because <laughs> 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 you didn't want to tangle with him. He, he could he could rub you out 
<laughs> wow, that's all fascinating. All right, well, let's let's spend our last half hour on uh, on your boy H.P. Lovecraft. Mm. So, um, I don't even know how to begin this exactly, but what's so at this point, the weird tale before Lovecraft starts writing, does the weird tale the weird tale exists? some kind of a weird tale tradition exists prior to Lovecraft. Right. And he sees himself as writing in this tradition. Yeah. And in fact, he may be of the writers that I covered in, in the weird tale. And I, I, I should tell, mention to you, the reason I covered Mackin, Dunsany, Blackwood and M.R. James is because Lovecraft himself talked about them in what he called his modern masters, the final chapter of mm-hmm. supernatural horror literature, and I added Beers just because I like Beers, and I thought he was he belonged in that company. Uh, and then Lovecraft is, in some sense, the culmination of that whole tradition, which doesn't mean necessarily he's better than these other writers, but he just sort of, sort of, uh, he took a lot from from all of them while mm-hmm. still being very original in his own right. But I think, yeah, I think Lovecraft among those six writers is among the first to be aware that he is writing in this tradition. Okay. Um, there are some people who, and I, I'm beginning to agree with them that that the, the weird fiction or fic, all the genres, you know, detective stories, romance, you know, whatever, um, only came to be as recognized genres in the 1920s with the establishment of pulp magazines. Mm. You know, amazing stories, weird tales, uh, you know, a whole bunch of romance magazines of that time, which you know are now forgotten, but they were out there, and that that's where that genre basically kind of kind of got going. Um, and to that degree, uh, genre fiction was kind of, uh, at least at the time, aimed at a, at a somewhat, uh, you know, if you want to call it that, less educated audience. I mean, you know, yeah. and that only happened because mainstream magazines at the time were basically banishing that kind of literature from their pages. They mm-hmm. solely were interested in what we would call literature of social realism, you know, Hemingway, Faulkner, uh, you know, Willa Cather, that sort of thing, uh, which is great literature, no doubt about it. But but they did not acknowledge, you know, they had come to, to regard anything, uh, what it's called, non-mimetic, anything that's non-realistic, you know, mm-hmm. whether it be uh, the supernatural or even a detective story or anything like that, as somehow... A lesser grade of literature and and the pulp magazines kind of picked up on that saying well if you're not going to publish this stuff we will and we'll direct it to the people who who uh you know who like it and uh you know of course the detective, detective story works best in the novel form that's when agatha christie got started she her first book in 1920 uh, a whole lot of other people came along afterwards but again even she and certainly uh i don't in my especially she doesn't actually deserve to be among the the higher echelon of writers very few detective stories uh writers are um and so that was whole separate tradition outside of the mainstream of literature um and so lovecraft who wanted to write this kind of work from from infancy onward said okay what am i going to do um you know he when weird tales was founded in 1923 he himself was aware of it. He he picked up these early issues, um, but he didn't want to submit to it. Uh, maybe he thought it was crude and beneath his dignity or whatever. But other people, <laughs> his colleagues said, you know, guy, if you if you have any chance of making any money, uh, you know, which was not an important thing to him, but, you know, everybody needs yeah. money. You can't, you can't live on air. Uh, he said, <laughs> you better start submitting to this, this magazine. It's about the only thing out there that would take your work. And he grudgingly did. And, 
you know, we, we know what happened thereafter. Um, but, you know, the problem with that is that, well, several problems with that. A, Weird Tales, and all the pulp magazines actually, paid very poorly. I mean, yeah. really rotten. Uh, Lovecraft supposedly got the highest rate, you know, uh, over his career, about a penny to penny and a half a word. Still not very much. Mm. Uh, given the con- con- when you consider that something like the Saturday Evening Post, which you know, enormous the paper of uh, you know circulation, they would pay like a thousand dollars for a whole story. I mean, that mm. that that could have you know, Lovecraft you know said I could live on six hundred dollars for a whole year. You know, back <laughs> then you could do that if you were very frugal, which he was. Uh, you know, getting a thousand dollars for a story was like like inconceivable. Uh, you know, to him, the the, the yeah. most he ever got for a single story was, I think, about. Uh, Three hundred and fifty dollars for for the Whisper in Darkness, uh, you know, a novella. So that that's it, you know, and that's like like half a year's wages for him. Um, so that was one thing. So you couldn't make any money unless you wrote in quantity, and Lovecraft just couldn't do that. Yeah. The second thing is, of course, is that it those magazines were not regarded as as uh, viable venues for for literary work. So he couldn't get much recognition uh, by publishing there, and that you know that played a part in the fact that he never got a book of his stories published in his whole lifetime. Uh, it was just incredible to think about uh, that, you know, given the fact, you know, the, how, how he's uh, such an incredible figure nowadays, um, literally no book of his stories published in his own lifetime. I mean, I've said this many times. I honestly cannot think of a figure in the entire history of world literature who was so obscure in his own day, so little recognized, so you know, uh, uh, invisible to the mainstream literary world as Lovecraft, who then became this just gigantic figure of pop culture and high culture uh, as yeah. he is today. Yeah, I mean, it's it's almost like if, you know, Tolkien had only lived to be like 30 mm-hmm. and then The Lord of the Rings was discovered decades after his death or something like that that's it, right i mean he, oh you know i mean although that's certainly a different situation because Tolkien was a recognized academic you know whatever uh even somebody like melville um melville published a lot of stuff you know he published obviously published moby dick and a whole bunch of others in his day they were they were not recognized they didn't uh uh you know uh gain uh, uh, uh critical acclaim and probably sold poorly um but he at least get, got his books out there. You know, his his renaissance didn't happen until the 1920s. Actually, Lovecraft was kind of aware that 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 uh, Melville was now kind of a, a big thing. You know, he actually went to New Bedford and looked up some of the Melville sites mm. out there in, in the, the whaling industry. Um, but even that is that is not at all a comparison uh, because, you know, at least Melville got his books out there and Lovecraft couldn't even do that. That is an interesting comparison, though, because Melville really didn't matter that much until the first half of the 20th century. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, I think one of the earliest scholars was Lewis Mumford, who was a, a great scholar in many different ways. Uh, um, but he he really championed Melville. And then other people came along and now, you know, Melville is huge. Walt Whitman might be somewhat similar. I don't know. Whitman got a lot of, you know, uh, recognition in his own day uh, but he got way more than lovecraft did certainly um but his his reputation is certainly advanced after his lifetime what's interesting this is something i've talked about um with the a few of my friends who who think about these kinds of things but it's interesting that genre literature 
I, I think I think you're probably right. What you were saying before about how it doesn't it almost doesn't really exist until the 20s or 30s as like a def, as these different proliferations of genres come about. But it's strange how in the modern sensibility we um, you see this in the Academy Awards every single year. The films that are supposed to be good and important films are realistic. They're realistic dramas and genre fiction. And look, a lot of genre fiction, a lot of all fiction is not very good. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of genre fiction is not that good. But like, if you think about something like Melville, Melville kind of is genre fiction in a way, you know, he's, they're sailors, they're on an adventure. They're really, it's, it's kind of, it, it's not, typical you know it's not the kind of story that some of the other dark romanticists wrote um and it's it really kind of it's had this massive impact on the american imagination and and film i mean jaws is basically uh moby dick mm -hmm. um is there was was lovecraft influenced by moby dick because i feel like there are some thematic parallels between between his yes, work people and... have written articles on this subject i i uh, maybe i mean he he did read moby dick in fact he tells that he would actually he took it on a, on one of his trips and i was reading it on a on a bus or a train which is kind of strange to think about but you know it's a huge book so it would take a long time for anybody <laughs> to get through it yeah. but i don't detect a whole lot of influence but there's probably some but the thing about the genres is um it's not merely that you know, they were aimed at this sort of, uh, you know, uh, lower level audience, um, but especially in the pulp magazines uh, and even and then later on beyond that, um, they tended to publish formula writing. I mean, there, mm. there were certain things you had to do. Uh, and, and the reason why Lovecraft in, in, in the later 20s and 30s had so much difficulty uh, getting into the pulp magazines, he got, you know, some of his major stories like At the Mount of the Madness were rejected was because his work had expanded to such a degree that it didn't fit into the sort of narrow conventions uh, that, that 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 Weird Tales and other magazines wanted. So it, it didn't fit anymore. And so he, he couldn't even publish there, um, mm. which was, you know, very bad for him economically. But he stuck to his guns. I mean, the, the, the one thing we ought to be uh, most grateful to Lovecraft for is... A, he didn't care about money. I mean, that that's great. I mean, it's and it's it's great if you, especially if you have money. It's even greater if you don't have money. I mean, man, he lived through, he lived through such such poverty. I mean, you you can't even begin to imagine it. I mean, uh, you can you can chronic. It's all chronicled in the letters, and he 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 accepted that fate for the preservation of his artistic integrity. And man, we are the beneficiaries of that because I'll tell you. You read any other story, I mean, most of the stories in the pulp magazines, and in, especially in Weird Tales, they're awful. I mean, they're really bad, uh, you know, <laughs> because they're just formula writing. You know, there are there were writers out there who catered specifically to these magazines. You know, they read up on them and said, OK, you want this kind of story. I'll write that kind of story. It meant nothing to these people. They just wanted yeah. the money. And now they're forgotten, <laughs> deservedly. Um, yeah. is isn't, and a very few others aren't. Uh, I, I've read way more detective stories than I probably should have in my time. I just have to like them, you know, as an as sort of a, you know, empty entertainment, whatever. Um, 
but man, there is so little really good work in the detective story. I mean, it is it is a pure formula writing, even Agatha Christie and and, and a lot of these yeah. other writers. Um, the one one form of the detective story, uh, story that might have some aesthetic uh, value is the hard boiled story. Uh, people like you know Dashiell Hammett, mm-hmm. Raymond Chandler, uh, James M. Kane, uh, Jim Thompson. Those are genuine writers. I mean, they re- that and that's a pure American form of writing. It's probably mm-hmm. the only genre that America has really created uh, out of whole cloth, uh, and specifically a California uh, school of writing, um, but not much else. Um, and romance, well. Forget that. I mean, I don't think anybody's <laughs> gonna remember Danielle Steele uh, uh, the moment after she dies. Or, you know, he, she's like the the the, the present day Robert W. Chambers. I mean, I would not advise reading Robert W. Chambers' romance novel. <laughs> Probably not worth reading. So, so Lovecraft was in this bind where you know, at, in, a, in a very short period of time, it's amazing how you know his career lasted less than two decades. He went from writing fairly conventional stories of, of the, the you know horror supernatural that went weird tales was happy to publish, but as he grew you know and especially after these there was something something happened during that New York period where you know, those two years spent in New York uh, were awful you know and and but when he came back to Providence something happened to him his you know imagination just exploded and that's when he wrote the Call of Cthulhu and 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 you know Color of a Space and all these great stories by that time. His imagination had so, you know, blossomed that that it was essentially unpublishable. He was lucky mm-hmm. to get, you know, Color Out of Space published in, in amazing stories. Unfortunately, uh, the uh, the 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 very penurious uh, editor Hugo Gernsback paid him a grand total of twenty five dollars for that story. Can you believe it? That amounted to one fifth, one fifth of a cent a word. It was, I mean. For for a story that probably is Lovecraft's greatest greatest contribution to to science fiction, unbelievable. Um, and That's you know, crazy. as I mentioned, the Mountains of Madness got rejected by Weird Tales precisely because it was a long story. Therefore, it would have to be serialized. And mm-hmm. let's be honest with it; it does move kind of slowly at the beginning. I think it's great um, that it builds up the atmosphere, but a serial in a pulp magazine has to have a lot of rapid action otherwise you're not going to get the person to buy the next issue you know that's that's the whole yeah. point of a serial to keep keep the readers interested and you know that'd be a tough tough thing for uh for at the models of madness why, so why did he not try to write novels or like pr- pursue a what i guess we would think of now as a more traditional book writing career yeah i mean that's 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 a question i think part of it has to do with he was he had very low self-esteem especially in his work he was always you know denigrating his own work it wasn't very good it's certainly not up to the class of mackin and and unsaney and and beers but uh he actually did write three short novels and the mountains of madness three quest of unknown kadath and the case of charles dexter ward case of charles dexter ward i believe could have been published at the time um, because remember, at that time, novels were or could be a lot shorter than they are now. Mm-hmm. Great Gatsby is 50,000 words. Yeah. Uh, Charles X Award is actually 51,000 words. It could have been published as a book. And and publishers were approaching him at times, you know, saying, hey, uh, you know, uh, Simon & Schuster said, uh, hey, do you have a novel on hand? And Lovecraft... This was this was he he'd already written Charles Dexter Ward. He said, "No, I have nothing on hand." Uh, how about <laughs> how about a collection of stories? And he said, "Well, uh, we're not you know story collections then as now just don't do as well as novels. Uh, people like to have an extended narrative that they can sort of you know 
get get involved with rather than yeah. individual stories that require a sort of a shifting of your your brain after at the end of each story he just felt that that charles x reward wasn't good enough that nobody would be interested you know and Lovecraft had this you know phobia of typing <laughs> it caused him you know back problems all this stuff they hated typing and he knew he couldn't foist that job on somebody else the manuscript if you ever looked at the manuscript of Charles Lovecraft was like ah, it's written all over the place it's impossible <laughs> for anybody to decipher except Lovecraft so he just couldn't bring himself to to um, uh, make that effort you know it's I think mostly it was his lack of self-confidence that's that's it mm. That's so fascinating. So what does he what does he do different from the previous guys in this weird tale tradition? Well, the short answer is he combines weirdness with science fiction. In fact, I think toward the end of his life, he was writing pretty much pure science fiction, except that he still wanted to to horrify you. Uh, the Shadow on a Time is just, is is my mind absolutely pure science fiction and got mm. published in Astounding Stories, which is you know one of the flagship science fiction magazines. Again, it came from Lovecraft's very uh, extensive reading of past literature. He says, you know, a lot of this stuff has been done over, you know, enough times. It, 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 it's been played to death. The ghost, the vampire, the witch, all these things are not only, uh, 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 you know, there's not only a lot of previous examples of it, and I had nothing more to say, you know, in those motifs, but as, as he stressed, the advance of science had moved to such a stage that these entities, these motifs are simply unbelievable and they cannot be used in serious fiction anymore because the effort of trying to convince you that something like that is actually happening is just too great. Mm. What is uh, still aesthetically viable is the fund of unknowability in the cosmos. We still haven't probed very far outside of our, our planet Earth yeah, uh, we don't really know what's out there. So let me uh, uh, place my entities in the vast cosmos at large, and they happen to come here. That's just you know a, a fictional device uh, to to bring these entities to Earth uh, and and have these interactions with human beings, um, and that mm -hmm. required a fundamental reshaping of the horror story to 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 you know bring it in in conformity with with things that we simply don't know about. Uh, the existence of Tulu, for example, uh, here is an entity that even when broken broken apart can, you know, put itself back together again, as, as it were. Uh, it's, it's, it's what Lovecraft called the defiance of natural law. Um, mm. And our understanding of natural law is a, 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 a factor of our own knowledge in the sense that we may know we may there are other natural laws out there that we may not know of. So Clulu mm. belongs to some other realm of entity where natural laws function differently from what our our vaunted science uh, has known. And you know, Lovecraft was a great devotee of science. He, he studied chemistry and astronomy from a very early age, and he knew lots lots about other sciences. But he also knew that science had only gone up to this point. There's so much more that we don't know about the universe. And and to to, to Lovecraft's mind. That is where the horror story or the supernatural story has its its basis because it has to rest upon uh, the unknown. Hmm. That's really fascinating. Well, and he, yeah, I feel like he's he definitely has more of a science fiction rather than like gothic uh, veneer. But um, it also seems like time becomes a big part 
of of his writing that's that's really absent from a lot of the other stuff. Yeah, that's very interesting. Lovecraft himself said in this essay, "Conflict is time. Conflict with time is the most you know vital uh, uh, aspect of my own psychology." I mean, he admitted that, and it comes out even in a work like *The Case of Charles Dexter Ward*, which to some degree is sort of a <clears throat> culmination of his Gothic uh, ideas. I mean, you know, he did write some Gothic mm. stories like uh, like *The Rats in the Walls*, a masterpiece of Gothic fiction. Although it's also a story written by somebody who had accepted Darwin, uh, because it basically talks about the devolution of that character at the end of that story mm. uh, back to you know a, a primitive state. So it was kind of a reversal of Darwin there. <laughs> but nevertheless, those stories are really <clears throat> in that Gothic vein that goes all the way back to the to the late 18th century. Um, but mm. thereafter. Uh, his his uh, <clears throat> understanding of time is vastly expanded. I mean, Clulu, you know, may have existed millions and millions of years ago. Um, the events of uh, the the Shadow Art of Time uh, occur, you know, when the when the when the character dreams of events a hundred and fifty million years ago. I mean, that's simply it's inconceivable. We simply you know we yeah. can't wrap our minds around that, uh, and yet. Lovecraft does a very convincing job of of, of envisioning what uh, you know primitive life might have been back then, uh, you know, in terms of the vegetation and and whatnot. He you know he was very well well informed on those subjects. Um, <clears throat> yeah, he he was uh, you know time for him was a uh, almost a mystical thing. You know, uh, he remembered when he was a kid, like six years old. He talked with a, like a, a woman who was like a hundred years old who had known George Washington. <laughs> <It's> unbelievable, <laughs> you know. Like uh, so, he felt that kind of spanning of time, even in his own in, in his own life. Uh, you know that we could, he could reach all the way back to the founding of the United States. Um, you know, in, in this in this encounter. Um, so yeah, I mean that that really is uh, uh, you know, and and for Lovecraft. Um, it's not so much the future as the past. I mean, most science fiction deals with the future, understandably, right. because it deals with the you know future uh, advance of science in ways that we can't predict. But Lovecraft looked to the past, um, uh, and and that's that's why he made this famous utterance, very similar to what William Faulkner said. Lovecraft said, "The past is real. It is all there is." That's because I mean, we know something about the past. The past is there. It's done. It's over. We can get some idea of what the past is from yeah. books and, and other things. The present is just this very thin and constantly moving line. The present really doesn't exist. It's always leading into the future, and the future is unknowable. So so what do you have to hold on to? It's the past. Uh, and Lovecraft did in his own personal life by, by living in the city of Providence, Rhode Island, which is you know a great historical city that's history stretches back to the 17th century. He himself kind of mentally placed himself back into the 18th century, which he felt was the, the age of, of uh, gentlemanliness and rationalism and things like that. Um, but nevertheless, he allowed his imagination to to expand, you know, millions and millions and billions of years uh, into the past. Yeah, it's it's so strange because in even like in something like The Thing, like as creepy as that film is, the thing that really sort of sets it apart and alien is the same. The thing that really makes them kind of stick with you is the idea that like this alien landed in Antarctica a long time ago. And this, the derelict has been there 
a long time. And so like the murders and the terrible things that happen in the narrative, yes, they're scary, but they don't, they don't really get at the cosmicness of the horror. And that seems to be the thing that really kind of, uh, it, it, it gives you this, um, well, it's kind of like, I mean, I think Burke was the one who sort of invented this idea that, um, of the connection between the horror, horror and the sublime and stuff like that. And it, it's this sense of awe. Like this is a thing that is beyond, like I'm only going to live if I'm lucky a hundred years, this thing is far, far beyond that. And that comes through in so much of his, his stuff. Yeah. In Lovecraft, you know, of course, you know, for the purposes of a narrative, he certainly sets up some sort of conflict between his his creatures and 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 human beings. But the real horror in Lovecraft is not what they do, you know, what not the harm that they can inflict, but the mere fact that they're there. Yeah, Clulu you know? <laughs> is there, right under the <clears throat> under the Pacific Ocean. He'll be there, you know, forever until he he emerges again, uh, as he did sort of by accident in that in in, in the Call of Clulu. Uh, and he has been there for many, many, you know, millions of years. Uh, his mere presence makes our own uh, occupancy of the earth tenuous and and insignificant. You know, yeah. we are creatures of a day. As I say, we, you know, collectively the human race may not exist more than, you know, an instant in time, whereas Clue will be there forever. Um, and and you know eventually will 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 dominate the earth and 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 a lot of these other creatures are are in a similar uh, situation. So that's that their mere existence calls into question our rulership of even this planet, let alone the universe. Yeah, my so my favorite of the post sort of Lovecraftian guys, and that I think that's one of the most interesting things about Lovecraft is just how many people he's influenced. But it's um I can never remember this author's name, but the story is the same deep waters as you. And he, he's actually, I think getting it optioned as a TV show uh, in, in England, but it's, it's a sequel to Innsmouth. Mm -hmm. So they have the U S government has taken the uh, deep ones to this facility. in I think the Pacific ocean and there's, there's tons of, of cool stuff in the story. But the moments that are that are really horrifying are sort of the deep ones indifference to everything that's happening around them. Because, you know, if I was being held in an FBI dungeon, I, I would be really upset, but they kind of don't care. You know, they're, they're sort of and they'll do this thing where like they one of the things that happens in the story is there's some, there's like a ping. There's some thing that happens like in the Pacific. That's like a, a noise and they don't know what it is, but the deep ones clearly know what it is. And so they're keyed into it. And that's when you're like something creepy is out in the ocean that they understand. And we don't, mm -hmm. and it's those sort of elements in Lovecraft that always, um, that I find to be the most creepy, you know, and yeah, I can't believe you I, haven't read that story. I yeah, that that doesn't strike a bell. I'll tell you though, it's amazing how many stories recent writers have written based on the Shadow of Innsmouth. Yeah, um, that it just triggers people's imagination somehow. Uh, there are at least three whole anthologies 
uh, on that story. And <clears throat> let's let's uh, not forget that Mr. Guillermo del Toro, a great Lovecraft devotee, he wanted, he still wants to film at the Mouse of Madness, whether he ever will or not. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, but he did a film called, I believe, The Shape of Water, yeah. <laughs> uh, which is the shadow over Innsmouth. Let's be blunt about it. It is the shadow over Innsmouth. Uh, not literally, but, you know, it's the, the, the framework is there. See, Lovecraft, you know, he said, oh, I don't really care about human beings. You know, they're, they're, they're matters of indifference to me. Uh, <laughs> that may be a little more of an exaggeration than, than, than he was letting on, uh, because that story actually does focus on the shifting psychology of that that character, the human character, who first encounters these horrible creatures, you know, they're, oh, they're awful, I gotta get, get away from them, and he runs away from Innsmouth through, through great effort, you know, one of the few action scenes in Lovecraft, you don't see that much right. in his work, but then, of course, he discovers that through heredity, he actually is one of them, and then he goes back and sort of makes his peace with them and says, I will now go down to their undersea realm and, and be among them. Uh, an incredible, you know, mental shift. So, so he does focus on the on the the human effect uh, of, of of the encounter with these with these creatures, and and Del Toro certainly does that, um, and and so many other writers have as well. Well, and that's a great example. So he can say he's indifferent to for a guy who's indifferent to humans. He sure wrote a lot of letters to other humans. That's right. But um, the horror there is that he's going to lose his humanity. I mean, it there's there is a fear of devolution in Lovecraft, clearly, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think you know whatever Lovecraft may have said about you know human beings are insignificant or not. Um, uh, he certainly valued his own life, and he you know he valued the lives of of his friends and colleagues, and you know, uh, so for him, the decision that that character in the shadow instance makes to basically renounce his humanity i mean maybe it was going to be it was going to happen anyway because he was in the process of transitioning into a deep one uh, through heredity regardless um this mental shift of sort of you know uh, reconciling yourself to these horrible creatures is the culmination of horror in lovecraft it's not a mm -hmm. diminution of horror it's it's the augmentation of it uh and and i it, i'm convinced lovecraft uh you know intended that effect um so and and this happens all the time uh, in 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 the, the shadow out of time uh again that's a that's a tale of psychic possession now again that's a story that's a theme that goes way back in literature and yet Lovecraft has updated it in the sense that these entities you know called the great race can can thrust their minds through time uh, into the bodies of of creatures mm -hmm. that they want to sort of investigate for their for their archives and things like that uh, and and the true horror of that story again is losing your humanity when when the guy has his his mind has been thrust out of his own body into the the body of this cone shaped creature called the great race and he looks down upon himself and you know sees him sees himself in this alien form and he just basically his mind is blasted um, the loss of humanity you know is 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 potent because we are all human you know and we can't imagine yeah. not being human uh, and and regardless of, of lovecraft's you know outward expressions of of indifference he, he must have valued humanity to some degree yeah i mean otherwise the stories wouldn't even be scary you know right. i mean that's like if it's just dagon that there's nothing scary to dagon about himself mm -hmm. You know, like you actually have to have an observer in order for stories like that to work. Yeah. 
Okay. Well, you've given me the time that you told me you would. Um, so I just so much more with... we can talk about. But, uh... Well, I definitely want to have more conversations. Like, I want to, I want to do a whole episode where we just talk about like atheism and Lovecraft and stuff like mm-hmm. that. But, sure. um, so I just, uh, I, I try to end every episode with what, what are you sort of, uh, what are you consuming right now? Do you have any recommendations for uh, watching or? reading or um let me see okay i don't know if somebody mentioned this film to me but i just saw a film called incident in a ghost land i think it came out a couple of years ago no oh. uh, it's a horror story and it's sort of confusing but the, the one thing that struck me is the very first image you see is a picture is a photo of lovecraft oh, oh interesting i i didn't expect that maybe that's why somebody recommended it to me i it must have i hadn't heard about this film otherwise uh, and it's a, basically about a, a woman writer who, uh, as, as a child, experiences this, this trauma, you know, horrible uh, event, uh, you know, uh, you know, her family gets whatever, brutalized by, you know, invaders, whatever, uh, but then becomes a writer who, who has this great admiration for Lovecraft. And, uh, um, and, and it's at some like cocktail party at the end, she actually meets Lovecraft. <laughs> they got some actor who plays who looks more or less like Lovecraft. Um, that was an interesting film. The, the the body of the film, to my mind, didn't actually have much to do with Lovecraft, but it's still a very effective of, of horror story in terms of, uh, of, of the cinematography and all that. Um, in terms of other writing, I'll tell you, I just got Ramsey Campbell's new novel. What is it called? The Lonely Lands. And I have every expectation that it is, you know, just as good as all his other previous work. Uh, Ramsey Campbell is now in his mid to late 70s, but still producing outstanding work i mean one of the best best horror writers weird writers uh ever maybe um you know in the short story in the novel and and you know he's he's an amazing writer and uh, anything of his is worth reading my only criticism of ramsey campbell is that he doesn't care about sports because <laughs> he lives in liverpool and i'm a liverpool fan and i was corresponding with him about this and he's just like i don't care about sports <laughs> yeah, and of course he, as a Liverpudlian, he he finds it annoying that that the Beatles are everywhere. I'll tell you, I'm going to go to Liverpool just to soak up the Beatles' atmosphere. I don't care what Ramsey says. I know, <laughs> I know that living there it must be a pain in the neck to to deal with all these Beatles fans, but yeah. uh, I just I I worship the Beatles, and I'm I'm going to look up everything I can about them when I go there. Yeah, the Beatles are amazing. Campbell's so funny. He's so he's so good, and I feel like. This is this could be a, a whole thing in itself, but he's probably uh, Lovecraft's greatest disciple. Would you say? Without question, I think Lovecraft yeah. would have said, "Oh my God, this this guy, you know, <laughs> uh, he, Lovecraft should be honored that Ramsey Campbell is writing." You know, sort of. A, I wouldn't even say in his tradition that I mean, uh, he wrote a Lovecraftian trilogy fairly recently. That's that's outstanding, but it's it's way different from what Lovecraft would have done and yeah. and it's 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 his own work um well worth reading though but the body of work that Campbell has done is amazing and I of course you know uh, I still think his early work is outstanding hard to hard to beat things like Demons by Daylight that single collection I think is better than almost everything else that anybody else has written in the field in the last 50 years um so um yeah no praise is too high for Ramsey Campbell yeah, he it it is shocking. To, well, it's actually not that shocking to me that he's not better known, but because 
Well, he's he's uh, shall we say what was the phrase caviar to the general? You know, it's it. I wouldn't say he's he's you know highbrow or anything like that at no. all. Um, but partly it's because you know a lot of and very little of his stuff has been adapted for film, which is a shame because a lot of it could be. It just hasn't happened. It would be um, easy to adapt his stuff. Like Lovecraft is notoriously so. difficult to adapt. Mm. And I think Campbell's stuff would be easy to adapt. Campbell, a lot of Campbell is very visual, has good narrative yeah. pacing. I, I just don't get why it hasn't happened. Um, but I don't think you know, people know who he is, man. Like well, that's, he's that's got, a part of it, I suppose. If he was writing like uh traditional fiction, he would be one of the most celebrated authors. Yes. Of the last 50 years, but because yes. he writes genre fit and he doesn't write the way. So Stephen King's stuff is very sort of, I don't know what the term, it just feels mainstream, you know? Well, uh, I'm sorry to say it, but King is kind of a lowbrow writer. Again, Campbell, without being a highbrow writer, is several steps above that. So he will not, he will never uh, yeah. uh, command that kind of popular appeal that and and Campbell doesn't care he's writing what he what's in him uh you know and he's made a great career for himself his Uh, his prose is just he's just a fantastic writer I mean yes yeah it's just very very good okay well thank you sir for for giving me your time today and uh I hope to talk with you soon okay sounds good (laughs) have a good one man take care bye thanks